Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons, your one and a half times favorite podcast in the Northwest and Central Western New York area. Uh, I'm Sean Merwin, here with my effervescent co-host, Teos Abadia. What's a sparkle in Teos? Ooh, my back. I uh, my back can tell you that I have done a lot Ooh. of Christmas work. I uh, I cut down a tree. I hauled it. I put it in the house. Um, I decorated. I mean, not alone. These things all involve family members. It was lovely. Um, and uh, yeah, and I've already watched uh, one holiday movie. So I'm I'm just it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, Sean. Is it okay? I will take your word for it. <laughs> we did have a snowfall here, and it's all melted, and now it's back up to fifty degrees. It's a but miracle, a I'm Christmas sure miracle. It's a yes. Global warming is a Christmas miracle. <laughs> Great. Merry Christmas, everyone! Uh, we but, got your global warming. But you know what was pretty? You know what did seem to be pretty amazing and miraculous was was packs unplugged. Mm -hmm. I heard so much. Uh, good news coming out of PAX Unplugged. I, I have FAHOMO, which was fear of having missed out. Okay, yeah, yeah, fear of having missed out uh, because just so, so much, uh, so much news there, which we will cover, and then uh, you know people having a great time and sharing their photos. And I have to give a shout out to to two folks, uh, Eric Mengi and Jose Ortiz. Yeah. Uh, when when uh, when Dave Christ asked Eric and I to write the epic for Planescape that premiered there, I did what I normally do. As I was like, okay, it's got to be an epic. So what are we gonna do? That's now I'm like working on the words of it. You know, that's mm -hmm. where my mind went. And Eric went, we need a life size puppet of the Lady of Pain. <laughs> and I'm like, sure, yeah, right, okay, whatever, yeah, life size puppet. I'm sure we'll we'll be getting that. And like 48 hours later, Eric has a sketch and he's got a prototype going. I was like, wait a second. And he's like, oh, yeah, I know Jose Ortiz. Jose is going to set us up. And if you saw, if you were yeah. at PAX and, and playing the Epic, or if you just saw the photos online, this was like a Broadway worthy puppet suit of a like 10 or 12 foot tall lady of pain that someone could get inside and move around and eric Incredible. just eric is amazing eric is a genius eric yep. i wish i had one tenth of the like creative genius yeah. that eric has because i have to do it iter iteratively and i finally after many many times realize something's a good idea eric's just like oh no this is what we need and this is what we're going to do and it's done <laughs> And yeah, Jose's, uh, you know, mastery of of those props and that stuff, just totally unbelievable. And if you go to Winter Fantasy and play the epic there, you will get a chance to see it as well. So Ooh, hopefully more people will get a chance to see this, this bit of thing. But if this was the first time I was ever going to a convention, I'm like, oh, maybe I'll play this epic that they were talking about. Oh, it could be cool. That that would have just blown my mind. I would have thought this is the most amazing thing ever. Well, on on my end, my FOMO was that uh, you know, I'm just exchanging messages with a bunch of buddies in high school, and one of them's like, "Well, I'm at Pax and Plug, and I'm playing, you know, 
uh, the, the Walking Dead RPG, and I'm playing these board games, and, and I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and he is a gamer. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I played D&D with him back in the days. But it, it's like, oh, you just went? Like, because maybe if he'd gone, you know, I would have been convinced to somehow hop on a plane. Maybe not, but, but you know, it would have been that much closer. I had no idea, and he was just there. So maybe next year I'll have to be there, and uh, Christoph and I can play. But as it was, he was just, you know, sharing all the awesome things he was doing. It sounded super fun. And... Yeah. I don't know if you saw the pictures of Chris Perkins and the Act Inc. group, but Chris Perkins looking like Morden Kanan. I had to say, wait, who's that guy? I'm like, oh, that's Chris Perkins. Yeah. It was really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of stuff that we will talk about in the news. But first, since we have so many dedicated listeners who reach out to us with questions and comments, we want to get quickly to our listener corner where we will start with Matthew Snow, ZJ1CU uh, via YouTube. Oh, that's a classic uh, Congratulations story. to Sean on release. It is. It is one of my favorites. Uh, on the release of Peril and Pinebrook, you and your team presented a very unique distillation of the D&D experience. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, following on that discussion about character creation and progression, adding layers of mechanical complexity to the play experience, what are your thoughts on systems with concise character generation and level up mechanics like Shadow Dark, which has random tables with pre-specified improvements, and Dragon Bane, which has random rolls for skill improvement and self-contained feats achieved less frequently? Do you think these types of progression are sufficiently robust for the general RPG TTRPG audience, or is optimization and tinkering a large enough part of the player base that these types of systems are more targeted in appeal. Whew. That's a that's a, an incredible question, uh, very intuitive, because I think there is room in the industry for all kinds of TTRPG systems. I think you can have, I, I think you can delineate many axes, many axes of simplicity and complexity with elements. So you can have character creation as one axis. You can have leveling up or uh, you know, level up mechanics as a second axis. You could have gameplay or even different parts of gameplay as a third axis. You could have axis. You could have the narrative mechanical interaction as a fourth axis. And you can have levels of complexity within all of those different things. And you would appeal to someone at that point. Uh, let's envision a game where there's low complexity in all aspects of the game. You can create a character in two minutes and gameplay is super streamlined. Leveling, simple. Uh, or even non-existent. Uh, you, you are going to find people who would like that game. Will it be their favorite game? Maybe not. Will it be the game they play all the time? Maybe not. But you probably have an audience there. Uh, now let's talk about a game where character creation is non-existent. Maybe everybody starts with the exact same, mechanically, the exact same character. No, no initial building of the character whatsoever. However, through gameplay, there's a complex set of decisions that you make that build your character and differentiate it. That's another kind of system that someone might get into. But since you can't pre-plan your character, it wouldn't appeal to that set of, of people. Uh, we could envision a game where character creation takes four hours, but gameplay is quite simple. Um, that would appeal to a certain type of player. 
So that question then comes back to what do you mean by sufficiently robust for the general <laughs> TTRPG audience? If you have that market information, I will pay you for it. Please let me know. Um, what, what do you think, Teos? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, these these types of examples like Shadow Dark and Dragonbane, they are using, they're doing what you generally should do as a designer, right? Which is they are matching character creation, character generation to the game itself, right? Shadow Dark is a more deadly game and it's about dungeon delving and it's about running out of things and including your hit points, sometimes very quickly. Therefore, having an extremely complicated way to create your character, while that may appeal to some, then they're going to hit the wall of, and, you know, five feet into the dungeon, my character died. This is totally terrible. And, it, you know, Mike Shays had a fun account recently on his videos of his Shadow Dark campaign. And the things that are happening because of the fact that they're playing Shadow Dark and because of the characters dying, things like the plot completely changes all of a sudden because you realize everybody who had a particular goal in mind died. So maybe we don't have that goal anymore, you know, just things like that. And so character generation is one of those pieces. The more you can match it to the type of game, the better it is. Right. So Blade Runner has a particular approach that hinges on certain things because of the type of game it is. And I agree with you totally, Sean, that D&D &D sort of is in this weird place where it has to sort of. It has to be a certain way out of nostalgia uh out of player expectations and it sort of has to be as appealing as it can be to as many people as possible so it can't be that simple you could easily have an offshoot game right like a basic set or, or what you just finished creating where you can make it much simpler for that particular experience but the general dnd wants to be more robust how robust i mean we've seen a variety of changes over the years right which reflect where the industry is and the expectations of the player base. But it's clear that people, if you took out all crunch, you'd have a problem. Uh, and if you went ultra crunchy, you, you sometimes get it. We've seen some problems there too. Yeah. And that's why it's important that we have third parties out there making not only their own versions of 5e, their own versions of D&D, &D, but completely different games that meet a completely different need, tell a completely different story. We used to joke about fate, that the the most fun of a fate campaign is that first session where you create your characters together, come up with your traits, I forgot, but aspects, come up with your mm -hmm. aspects, build this, you're almost building the world and your the relationship between your characters and then gameplay sometimes was anticlimactic mm -hmm. because you were doing all of this stuff. And then the gameplay sort of doesn't meet that expectation that you've just create creatively done all this work on your character and on your party. Um, so, you know, it can, it can work in different directions. And you just, as Teo said, you need to be aware of what your game does and the experiences that the game is supposed to create and have these other aspects of it, not just work with it, but enhance it. Yeah. And I think that, you know, if the question here is looking at should D&D change, I mean, D&D always changes, so it will. It will necessarily change, it, it unavoidably so. It, it, good luck trying to prevent that. But 
you know, we might be a little surprised. I'm sure certainly a little surprised that if even looking at 2024, it does not seem to continue the momentum of 2014, which I think one of the sweet spots of 2014 was that it managed to do a really good job of appealing to people who wanted a fair bit of crunch, who maybe played 3E, for example, and also give you the kind of story lightness, easy to jump in that both 4E and earlier editions had. And I think that we're seeing it get a little crunchier, which is maybe different than what the rest of the industry is doing. And, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And maybe it course corrects after that. Maybe 6E will be a far simpler one, or maybe it won't. You know, who knows, right? It'll be interesting to see how it goes. But I think that with D&D, it's always hard. You always end up where you can't entirely change things out to some super light system. That would, that would leave too many people unhappy. And we, we have trouble even leaving the ability scores behind, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, so... I don't I was good I had something I was going to say <laughs> pithy in summary here but I completely lost it uh but you know give us your thoughts whether it's you know on social media or on our discord or YouTube or wherever you watch or listen to our stuff uh, let us know what you think uh because a lot of it is what do the fans want and that changes over time as well as you gain new players or you lose some players what people want will shift and trying to please everyone is impossible sometimes trying to please one person's impossible so uh, that's something that you always have to be in keep in mind as you design your games and maybe sean i'll add here that that whole concept of how the game, the creation must fit the rest of the game, sort of that's the secret sauce, right? And, and a person might pick up D&D &D and say, well, this is less or more crunchy than I want it to be. But, oh, look, when I play the whole game, this works for me. And if enough people feel that way, then it's a great, successful game. Um, you, what you don't want is that mismatch, right? That you come in saying, oh, I'm, I'm so excited to play a super crunchy game. Oh, look, the rest of the game, when I actually play, it doesn't feel that way or the opposite, right? I wanna have a real story rich experience, but I keep on having to worry about my modifiers, right? And then those, those things are at odds, then it really suffers. A game can be more or less crunchy than you might want it to be, but when the whole experience plays out, then we end up happy, right? Our next question comes from George PR via Mastodon. Uh, would you consider talking about the process from vision to publishing a whole setting like Aurora on the Eldritch Lorecast or a Mastering D&D podcast? Yes. Yes, we would. Uh, yes, we would love to do that. So the reason this question came out is Aurora, the Kickstarter I did with Ghostfire Gaming for this post-apocalyptic world, uh, is starting to be fulfilled. People are starting to get it around the around the globe. And uh, so that's where, where this question came from about creating a setting. So there are many different ways you could do it. I will talk about it in as brief a time as I can while still being somewhat uh, full. So what I do when I create a setting is first, I would concept it in, in two ways. Think about why it's different than what's out there right now and what makes it stand out from everything that's out there right now. 
And the process that I used for Aurora started back when I was a kid. So this has been like, you know, a 40 year process of, of things. The second thing I will say is when you're publishing something as opposed to just creating it for yourself, that throws many, many bits of sand into the gears. You have to account for so much that will end up changing the setting. And I'm not going to get into all of that at this time. When you're starting to create a setting, though, a lot of the process I used is uh, discussed in a game called Microscope. Now, this game I've only known about for about 10 years. So I didn't use it when I was creating this. But many of the steps that you take when you're creating a setting are in this game. So this game gamifies a setting creation. Microscope doesn't account for the setting being used for games. So you you would be more likely to use it if you were creating a setting. You could use it to create a setting for your games, but it's not going to cover everything that's in a game. So it might be more useful to create it for storytelling, fiction, and so on. But here's the process in, in a very brief uh, list what uh, Microscope tells players to do. First, create a one-sentence description for your setting. That gives you something that you can constantly point back to when you're making decisions. For Aurora, it would be in a world ruled by dragons, what happens when the draconic society collapses as the dragons succumb to a rage-inducing disease? Boom. Everything is going to go back to that. What uh, microscope has you do next is create a period within the setting and put a period at one end where you will start and a period at the other end where you end. Now, this doesn't have to cover every time period in your setting, but it gives you bookends, they call, so you can focus everything between there. Mm. Uh, a period would be like in our thing, an era, maybe, you know, the, the, the Enlightenment versus the uh, technology revolution. Mm -hmm. And then everything else would fit in between. The third thing is to add a palette. What a palette is are things that you want to make sure are included in your setting or things that you definitely do not want in your setting that would normally be there. So mm -hmm. in a fantasy D&D &D type world, magic you would assume would be there. So you don't really need to say, we need to make sure we include magic. Now, if you wanted to exclude magic, that would be something that you would put on your palette as a do not. With mine, it was, Aurora, I don't want races. I don't want races mechanically. I don't even want races story-wise. So that's one thing on the palette that we're going to get rid of. What what do I want? Um, I want the world to be constantly in flux where there is no safe place you have to create your own safe places so there's not going to be towns cities and so on that are detailed and every square foot there uh it's going to be open when you get those things on your palette you're then ready to do a first pass so the players in this microscope game will either create a new period in between these so between the right, the dark ages 
and the information revolution, we're going to have a renaissance. We are going to have, mm -hmm. right? You can create a period or create an important event within a period that is already there. Mm -hmm. So these are things that are happening that are important within that, that uh, period, that age. And that's where you start. And then you just go through and you create new periods or you create events within these periods to fill out your world. Um, and, and that's, that's a great place to start. And I never realized it until I took this and I thought about the worlds that I'm used to playing in. Think about dark sun, right? right. That's what I was what, thinking. What's, what's in the palette, what's out of the palette. Yeah. What's, uh, what's one of the periods, what's one of the things. So when I'm doing this in my class with students, I use stuff that they might know to say, okay, here's. Here's the world I built. He, these are the ages. These are the periods. These are events within them. You see how they fit with Dark Sun, Mateos. I bet you could do a whole chart oh, yeah. of ages and events yep. and things that were important. Uh, and you know, I, I want to stop say, and let you talk. Just, yeah, but in here to say that that when we, what hearing you go through this made me think of is if I think of the various settings, I think some of them have done better than others because they have these things in mind, right? They didn't necessarily go through this process, right? But but they, you can easily in one sense describe what makes them unique. You can easily think through the eras and what they added to it, the major events and what happened and why it matters. And, mm -hmm. and as an example, if you even take the Forgotten Realms, right? People will often say like, well, what even is it? And it is hard to describe it. While there are big events, they often don't register, their after effect isn't very clear. Right. Mm -hmm. What the elves and Mithranor did doesn't exactly translate or what the Netheries, you don't often feel it. It's just stuff that happened a lot like a real world history where you can't easily dissect it. And mm -hmm. the settings where it is really clear, those, I think, really stand out. It's not to say Forgotten Realms isn't a fun place to play. It is. But but as settings, right, settings stand out when they have these kinds of characteristics. That's cool. I, I, I yeah. loved hearing them. Yeah, and with a game, then you need to also think about what that means for gameplay and the game experience that the DMs will. Mm -hmm. They're they're using this toolbox that you're going to create for your setting to tell great stories with the players. So you want to keep that in mind. Uh, so when I decided no races, then I had to say, okay, this is going to be a five E game. So I need to account for that, not just in the story, but in everything game related. Race carries a huge weight in D&D. &D. Both mechanically, you choose a race and you get a whole list of attributes and modifications and so on. But also story-wise, right? It's the elves versus the dwarves. It's the orcs versus the gnomes. It's this, it's that. And so when you divorce a game because of the setting from that, you need to replace it with something. And that's why replace, we replaced races or species or heritages or whatever you want to call them and created a system where you where those race delivered properties are given to you in a different manner. Because what you can say, oh, good, they got rid of races and replaced it with heritages, but it's still doing the same thing. It's saying mm -hmm. you are from a group and because whether it's genetically or culturally or spiritually, because you're in that group, you are the same as everybody else in the group. And I wanted to get rid of that mechanically and story-wise. And so that's what we did uh, in Aurora. And 
because of the way the world was built, we had to think of the mechanics behind it. That's cool. Neat. Uh, last question via uh, Patreon Discord from Andy Demps. When converting older adventures, how much consideration do you think should be given to 5e's different rule sets and play culture? The standard advice is just swap the monsters for 5e equivalents, but in counterbalance and pacing can be different. Character powers are wildly different. 5e can be used to emulate the play of older editions, but the play culture has expectations of more ability checks. It doesn't uh, use dungeon exploration turns, reaction roles, etc. And there's a huge difference in resource management. Should a good conversion account for that or leave it up to the DM? Teos, I've been talking too much. You go. Yeah, th this is a really fun question. And and someone else on, on the Discord asked, you know, what would you do if, if you got the chance to redo Pharaoh? And I think you really have to decide what your project is supposed to do, right? You have to think of it. You In these things, we always think about, well, what's the business of it? And, and, and how are you going to tap into the nostalgia, right? Are you doing like a yawning portal version of Pharaoh? Or are you doing sort of more like the way Tomb of Horrors was used as inspiration for Tomb of Annihilation? Mm -hmm. Those are two very different types of products. And it's important in these kinds of situations, if you are really in a company, you sit there and you workshop the benefits of these different paths, but you're kind of choosing one or the other, right? And so if Sinister Secret of Saltmarsh is such a good adventure that you can just swap in the monsters and the gameplay is largely the same. Um, you may realize, well, that monster doesn't work at the CR or whatever and puts in the Elson, but, but it generally that experience of checking out this sinister house on the hill will work and what you find below will work. And so it'll, it'll all kind of just work out by just swapping monsters. So that's fine. In other cases, you realize that specific situations, that swap won't work. Not only is it the wrong CR, but it's just the wrong feel. Maybe the monster felt different, or maybe the adventure in its old state, this was a bad spot in the adventure. And so we should change it. And I think that if you look at the Saltmarsh product, some of those dungeon magazine conversions don't do a lot of conversion and probably should have, because yeah. the experience is just kind of weak in certain areas. And it was weak back then, and it's still yeah. weak in the 5e conversion product. And that's where I think that, well, we should have maybe looked at that and modernized it. A whole nother level beyond that is to say, if I want this product to be different, play off of those themes, but be different. The way Tomb of Horrors is not Tomb of Annihilation, but we can draw the lines to it. Then you know, one can do that. Right? And we could do that with Pharaoh. We could say hey, the way we looked at Cholt and reimagined it, how would we look at this Egyptian-style world and how would we change that up and make especially the start better, right? So that we mm -hmm. are, so that it makes more sense for the player characters. And then how do we look at what's happening to the land where the water has been taken away and the, the pharaoh and the ghost and the curse and how do we weave a great story about that? And we probably want some pyramid experiences because that's pretty central to it. But how do we make those fit a modern era? And in that situation, we can look at entire levels of the dungeon, and just chuck them out of the design because we don't care for them or we have a better idea and we can just create a new version of that. And in that case, I think that's great to, to just take that approach to it. Um, what do you think, Sean? I think a good example of what we're talking about is Tomb of Horrors. When we, 
you know, Tomb of Horror is always put in like the top 10 adventures of all times. Uh, when they did the, which we'll talk about in a second, the 50th anniversary of D&D, that was up there as, you know, uh, somebody's favorite module. Uh, it wasn't good. It wasn't <laughs> good back then. And it's not good now. And it was it memorable. Absolutely. Sure. Was it deadly? For sure. When I ran it for a group back then, they had all heard that it was very deadly and everything was a trap. And so they survived, but they didn't do anything. And back then there were all these ability checks, as Andy mentions, right? So you're you're literally testing every five foot square with a pole and you're throwing canaries into rooms and you're doing these sorts yeah. of things. And so in that sense, it worked for that era because based on the DM style and the player style, you could make that work. When you update that to fifth edition, what does that now work? require it requires constant checks it requires constant perception checks investigation checks there are practically no npcs in there to interact with there's very little um i don't there's very little yeah. even combat there's there's not a lot right it's it's just it's not the best adventure uh ever not even <laughs> in the top 50 for me yeah, i and, i'd run uh, it in 5e yeah. um and and it using the the dungeon magazine conversion which is which came out during 4e which is largely what right. um it's 4e D, D next um it's largely what ended up in in the uh yawning portal product and yeah. you know it, it we went into it as for especially for a, a couple of the players had never played it right and they wanted to experience it and so we're like well let's just have this fun experience make yeah. characters specifically for this just enjoy the process and, yep. you know, the reality was they hit a wall pretty early on and they would not have kind of kept going had this been like a tournament, event, tournament adventure or yeah. had they not known more about it as they did through the meta conversation, they would have been like, cool, we reached the end, we're done. And there was so much more. And so two different places, we kind of just said, like, by the way, you find another thing. Okay. And, and we continue going on. And there were deaths and there were classic deaths, you know, the right. classic fun deaths that you can have in the adventure. We had a yeah. good time. Would we want to turn around and do another experience like it? No. It was fun, but it's not what you would want tons of, right? It, it's neat yeah. as a one-off different thing. Yeah. And and you well know the difference between a good and a, a good adventure and an adventure that can be made good through tailoring and through managing expectation and changing things. So, yeah. 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 So I hope that uh, answers Andy's question. Thank you for that, Andy. Thank you to everybody who has written in via via YouTube, via Mastodon, via Patreon, or wherever else you hear us. Let's jump quickly then into our news and commentary to talk about the news that came out this week. And boy, was there a bit of it. We're going to start with D&D adding Ghostfire Gaming and Dungeon Dudes to the third-party D&D Beyond ecosystem. What? Grim, I know. Grim Hollow Layers of Etheris is on sale right now. And Dungeons of Drakenheim from the Dungeon Dudes is on pre-order for a December release. Uh, were, were you surprised, Teos? <laughs> 
Surprise, Sean. I would have been more surprised if I'd woken up with my head stapled to the carpet. Mm -hmm. That's is that good? Uh, I think so. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, it was shocking because. I mean, we've seen critical role there and we know there have been partnerships and partnerships in the past with critical role with uh, Ack Inc. But this was. Um, really a big move towards this third parties being on D&D Beyond. And there's a lot that a lot of questions with this as to what it means, right? Um, it's amazing, I think, for Ghostfire, uh, for Dungeon Dudes, who I, I met recently at Gamehold, well, two incredible creators, um, super nice folks. Um, I think for, for those entities, this is amazing, right? Being first is going to be fantastic. It's going to lead to a lot of sales, a lot of attention. As And they, they have said, this was from a press release, with these two editions and more on the horizon, Dungeons & Dragons continues to invest in its talented partners in the aspiring creative community uh, surrounding the world's greatest role-playing game. And I like that statement a lot. I'm not sure I fully... I don't want to say believe it. That sounds wrong, but because I know the, I think the person writing this believes this. But D and D has a terrible track record of working over time, long term, with partners. Well, right. It's why we end up with like cold press making a variant game. It's how we ended up with the OGL debacle. This is great. This is a good move forward. How it goes from here will be really interesting to see. Who get? Who else gets invited? How widely the net is cast, how, you know, can, will there be a time when anybody can publish? And there are all kinds of issues this brings up, technical issues of, you know, you're the DM and everything on the DMs Guild suddenly also is on D&D Beyond or let's say that amount of content and your players show up with completely wild builds that are some of them bad, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, or can you not even find the official product? Because already if you bring that menu down, Various really good books don't show up in that menu because you can't show everything on the menu. And right now we have, you know, two slots with Critical Role and two slots with Dungeon Dudes and Grim Hollow. And then you have little things like this digital one off one shot things that are being offering and then just the menu gets filled. And that may be bad even for D&D &D and for partners. So there's a lot here, Sean, I'll shut up, but I'm just, I'm trying to figure out all this out in my brain because there's both so much potential and um, so many questions still remaining as to how it'll go. Mm -hmm. I'll answer that in a second. I will want to also mention that uh, someone asked, what is Layers of Etheris? Uh Layers of Etheris was when we did our monster grimoire monster book, one of the stretch goals was layers to put the monsters in. We funded that. So we were able to make this book uh, with 20 layers covering levels one to 20, one for each level using all new monsters or all the layers are of new monsters mm -hmm. that we used in the book. So if you buy layers of Atheris on D&D uh, &D Beyond, you'll get all of those layers. So 20 short adventures. 75 new monsters that are not only in the adventure, but also now in uh, all the monsters that you could get on D&D Beyond. Some new magic items, uh, some new feats. The feats, I believe, have to do with uh, 
harvesting monster parts. Mm -hmm. In the monster book, we did a, uh, oh boy, I just went right out of my head, a a salvage system Mm -hmm. where you can salvage parts of monsters and make things out of them. Potions, existing potions or new potions. So those magic items are things that you can make from the monsters that you kill. It's all there. And maps. We did 20 big poster maps for each one for each layer. They're all there and you can pull them down into the maps uh, beta program or alpha, whatever they're calling it. You can use it there. All there ready for you to answer the question of, is this good? I have no idea. (laughs) I have no idea if in the long run it's going to be good or not. Here's what I do know. I know that wizards of the coast cannot make every product that people want. So we need a good, rich third-party ecosystem to make those products that other people might enjoy, to keep the hobby growing, to keep everyone satisfied based on the diverse wants and needs of, of the player base. A company cannot main, cannot survive unless they have access to the player base. And if players are moving to digital, whether Wizards does it or not, players are moving to digital. In order to have access to that player base, the third-party creators who want to remain a viable company need access to those people. So they need access to the place where those players are. Mm-hmm. Like it or not, that's that's where things are. Yeah. Having the ability to get content in front of the audience is huge. As yeah. a reference point, we are running a Kickstarter right now at Ghost Fire. We, you know, we had the initial wonderful 200,000 and then it goes down. And then if you know how Kickstarter works, it goes along in a very small clip mm-hmm. for a while. And then you get to the end and there's a rise. There's a rise. Yep. U-shaped. Mm-hmm. So sale, you know, pledges go down, down, down. Pledges were down, down, down. This was announced. Our pledges went up. Just the fact that yeah. Wizards of the Coast placed a name in front of people has boosted that. Amazing. That's the sort of boost we need across not just Ghostfire, not just the Dungeon Dudes, but for everyone who wants to make content. Yeah. And, and, and that's where this points us. Most of us in the industry know that this does not hurt D&D at all. It helps D&D. As long as they can figure out the interface and things like that, it is good to have strong players in the system. And it is good for D&D to have good relationships with partners. And clearly it has a good relationship with Ghostfire. wouldn't have started with them. Um, so that's great. It started, I mean, obviously Critical World was there, Ack Inc. was there. But, you know, this step was taken with Ghostfire. And it's indicative of the relationship the companies have, which is fantastic. We want more good relationships between wizards and other companies. I agree with you. If I step back and I look at it, I mean, D&D Beyond wants to be the place where D&D players go to to create characters and manage things and so on. And if it wants to be that way, it's, it's going to either be closed or open. And closed would be a problem the bigger that D&D Beyond gets. So open is therefore better. How open, I think, is an interesting question, because if you get so open that you look like the DMs Guild, I think that prevents, presents some real challenges for the interface and for the experience that people would have. Um, 
so we'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes. It's going to be interesting to see those steps. It's going to be interesting to see who else gets added, how quickly, and how that contributes to the experience. Um, one thing for sure I want to see is that the modernization of D&D Beyond continues rather than stagnates so that you see the, the ease of filtering, right? Like I, I want to be able to search and either look only at the layer of Atharis monsters or exclude them, right? I want to be able to do both things uh, because they're great. And by the way, I got to say as your friend, Congratulations, man, because you made Layer of Atharis, and this is so cool that it's on D&D Beyond. So pause and pinch yourself, Sean. Yeah, I I have. Uh, Greg Marks and uh, Tom Donovan were the other creators of the layers. The monsters were created by a team, a diverse team of, you know, 40 or 50 creators who created all the monsters. And, you know, have, being able to say, hey, that monster you created, it's now being seen by you know, a million people as opposed to a thousand or, or 2000 people is, is it's so good to be able to lift up a creator like that um, and show them what their hard work has, has brought them. Um, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Other news though, coming out of PAX was the 50 year panel, which we've mentioned, but we will go into a deeper thing. Uh, first thing was like, like many people, I was subscribed to the channel. So I got a message on Thursday that the panel had started, even though it was meant to go uh, Friday morning at three, th Friday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern time. So I, like many people rushed to the site to see a sound check going on <laughs> And a blank stage with just tables. Apparently, they went live Thursday accidentally. No worries. Funny. They did start on Friday, and it went, I think, extremely well uh, with lots and lots of news. I'm going to let you start sure. with uh, some of your insights from it. Yeah. So the first few things, I mean, there was a new golden logo for the 50th anniversary. Looks very cool and shiny. Uh, the panel started with a review, uh, and it was Amanda Hammond who led the panel. It was Chris Perkins. It was Jeremy Crawford. It was uh, James Wyatt. The panel started with a review of their favorite adventures across D&D history, from Radiant Citadel and Tyranny Dragons and 5e, to the typical things such as Sean's favorite Tomb of Horrors, uh, Tamawakan, uh, Sojkanth, which had Chris Perkins. We were having fun. And, and I'll say I said this later in our notes, but I'll say it now. Shout out to the folks on our Patreon Discord because we had a sort of live chat during this, and we were all laughing at the various pronunciations of things. And so Sojkant at some point was was like Sojko or something. I forget how Chris Perkins said it. it was something really different than what everybody expected. Socon, I think. Socon, so yeah, because everybody said like I I really had a great yeah. time at that convention. Um, and, and yeah. one of the few settings that got mentioned was the adventure Shadows of the Last War from the Ebron setting. And then finally, after all this, you know, nostalgia time, they began to reveal the new products. Uh, you want to cover the first one, Sean? I would love to. The first is Descent into the Lost Caverns of Sokan, T-S-O-J-C-A-N-T-H. Uh, this was an old adventure that has been updated. Uh, the cover they had an awesome Bahir, and it it I I was there. I was listening, and I'm still not quite sure what this is. Yeah. It 
I at first I thought it was just a one shot adventure, uh, or, or a remake that, of the adventure yeah, that but... you could play, right? A remake of the adventure, but then at one point they may have implied that it was going to be an anthology of one session short adventures. Yeah, uh, it would make more sense to be that latter thing, an anthology of these adventures. But they did mention that they were going to re-add tournament scoring to these adventures. And if you don't know, I in the chat of the main chat, uh people are like, what's what does that mean? <laughs> well what they used to do was they'd run these at a, at conventions and you would get a score based on how much progress you made through the adventure. And then they would announce a winner and the winner might get prizes. They have multi-round tournaments where you'd move on to the next round. And many of these old adventures that we hear about, you know, against the giants and and Tomb of Horrors and, and a lot of these old adventures started out as these one shots at, at conventions these tournament adventures that they would then package and put out as, as an adventure module. Sometimes they'd leave the scoring in the, the adventure. So you could at home yeah. get your score. Uh, so, so they're, they're going back to to that, which I think is interesting. It's fun. I mean, I took a really deep look into tournament scoring when we were working on the D and D open together, when we were bringing that back uh, for five E mm-hmm because the Watsi directive was, you know, create scoring. And, and I looked at these old models and it's really hilarious to look at them through a modern lens. So I'll be curious whether they really go off of what that used to be used, which we largely dumped for our D and D open scoring or whether they're going to, you know, are they going to modernize it or going to go with the old version? I, I'm, I'm going to be super curious to see that. Mm-hmm. So we will keep an eye, not only on that tournament scoring, but on what this, book actually is when uh when we hear more about it you want to talk about vecna yeah vecna's coming back uh it it so far haven't seen it be the stranger things version it it seems to be our Greyhawk foe uh vecna eve of ruin will be released may 12th 2024 they said and then take all these dates we mentioned with a grain of salt because these were on images and then wizards pulled the images so maybe they're not quite ready to say those dates, but that was the original release date communicated, uh, subject to change. And this adventure has been hinted at before. Now we get its proper title for the first time, Vecna Eve of Ruin. It is specifically made to be a 50th anniversary celebration adventure that takes characters to places tied to D&D's past. Vecna is from Greyhawk. Uh, there's a long tradition of porting Greyhawk's elements into the Forgotten Realms with no care whatsoever. So, you know, are we fighting Vecna in Keeland? Are we fighting Vecna in the Amedio jungle? Are we, you know, any of the many places that Vecna has been? No telling. Um, we do know the adventure will provide play up to level 20. Um, and so it, it certainly sounds exciting. Um, I hope it's as good as we all want it to be. <laughs> mm-hmm. Next, we heard about quests from the Infinite Staircase, the release date being July of 2024, if the the images that were pulled down are to be believed. This is, like the other, a compilation of several adventures, perhaps even including previous adventures updated. Uh, The artwork uh, was showing an Eldritch Giant. Uh, said to be a new creature. So we'll see what that is. Yeah, And Taylor points out in our notes here, yeah, I was just say it was this purple skinned yeah. creature that to me, the artwork looks a lot like an eldritch giant, which were big in 3E and also were in 4E. So we'll mm-hmm. see. Yeah. And you also note in our show notes that 
Infinite Staircase was the name of a 1998 2E Planescape anthology. Uh, and the same year, there was an adventure for Duty and Deity that tied the Forgotten Realms to the Infinite Staircase so the adventures could be run uh, together in tandem. Yeah, what was this... the 2E version like? So the idea was a staircase that ties, um, that starts, the root of it is actually in uh, Isgard, in the domain of Saloon. You can tell this trivia to your friends. Um, and from Saloon's home in this kind of hidden root of the staircase it spirals up and and can look like any kind of weird staircase you know sky's the limit so to speak um and it has mm -hmm. stops along the way doorways along the staircase that lead anywhere so it's yet another way to get all through the planes um and of course it was part of a planescape product too so you can you can just think like wait i've got sigil the city of doors i've got the infinite staircase i've got the outlands i've got spells so many ways to travel the um lilins were who watched over the um the staircase and it was almost like a three-dimensional maze and so just a creative fun house right where you can add anything both in the staircase itself and through the doors that they travel so you can essentially think of this as a framework to tell whatever stories you want Maybe they're multiplanar. You know, maybe this is what what uh, Jeremy Crawford says when he says, oh, yeah, we'll give you more Planescape content or other content. Maybe it's because, well, you could say that this is Planescape to begin with and you could add a door to any, you know, to Eberron and then say, look, we're supporting Eberron again. OK, maybe um, it's I don't think it's quite what we mean, but uh, but uh, it could still be really cool. And I'll look forward to seeing whether these are all new experiences or are they previous adventures that are modernized it'll be very interesting to see speaking of history the making of the original dungeons and dragons 1970 to 1976 is a product being released we assume in june of 2024 this is a historical look at the original dnd rules created by gygax and arneson with arts and sketches from the creation of the original game it was said that uh, historian John Peterson was part of this project, and this will be 500 pages long. Yeah. So the, the how many pages <laughs> would you say the OD&D books were, if you talk about normal size pages? Yeah, no. 50, maybe? I mean, not because I mean, they're uh, little booklets, so less than that even, I think. But yeah, good question. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. If you take all of it, like the original three, it wouldn't even be 20. Yeah, right. Um, if you expand out to some of the other. Uh, so this book will uh, will give you the history of that original game. Uh, and it's, it's interesting knowing, having read all the histories and even heard first-person accounts of, right, of Gygax and Arneson and, and they're working together and then their rocky history and, it's just it's fascinating on a sort of a drama llama level uh, to hear about this from you know from a historian <laughs> who's deeply yeah. studied the era. I'm glad John's involved. If John were not involved, I mean, I'm still worried about this, but I'm a lot less worried about whether this will be an, an accurate and fair portrayal, right? But having John on it gives it, I think, that that he would not want to sign his name off to something that's too slanted in one direction or the other. Um, because yeah, that history is r really uh, quite wild. 
Um, so we'll, we'll see how this, uh, how this goes, but I know one thing and that is I can't buy this book fast enough. The moment I can, I will get my hands on it. Love this stuff. There you go. And we will be talking about it once it comes out too, I'm sure. And we got a core rules preview. If the images are to be believed, May 2024 may be the release date for the player's handbook. We got pictures and art and layout from several sections. Uh, the fighter class has a huge full-page art uh, piece with the title, short description, amazing art. Uh, they shared the fighter subclass of the champion. They gave a spread of backgrounds, looking like a two-page spread would have four backgrounds with it. And now we learn that backgrounds come with a little more mechanical weight than the backgrounds of of the 2014 rules. Yeah, and, and uh, what else did you notice from this? I mean, I thought that was really, really interesting. I mean, one is like, you know, maybe they dress this up as a layout to kind of show it off and they're just sort of testing it. But it's also possible, given the timing, that, you know, they really are starting to just finish sections and put them into the, the finalized layout. And so looking at these backgrounds, I mean, there's a ton of stuff in the player's handbook that isn't in these, right? Um, backgrounds are actually something that's pretty meaty in the current player's handbook. And now we get, you know, four to a page instead of, you know, one and a bit to a page. Um, and, and there's a, there are fewer words. There are none of those bonds, flaws, you know, all that is gone. Those tables are all gone. It's just a very short and mechanical bit. And maybe it gives you a language and a tool proficiency and then a feat. And it gives you a one paragraph description and we're done there. So that's very interesting. Uh, we shall see what we get. Yeah. And uh, they they looked at art from the uh, for the DMG. A mention was made again of a complete campaign setting being included. Mm -hmm. We will see what that is. Uh, lots of art is being redone. The monster manual, they're going to have all new art and higher CR versions of monsters like oozes. CRs are not supposed to change. Uh, they've clarified in many different places. So the CR of a monster that's currently out there will not change, but the monster may change to update the math to put it at, at the CR uh, level that it should be at. I mean, I just want to get my hands on just a couple of example monsters. I mean, that's I think that that will always drive me wild about this playtest process was that we have we may never get a playtest packet where we can actually play with all the pieces until the final version. But so it goes. Um, and yeah, we for some reason we are getting stats for the characters from the 80s cartoon. Um, and it, everybody keeps acting like this is the first time, but I've got the bulk of it in my DVD that has these. Um, but, you know, like we're, we're, we're going to get these. And I don't know why. It's, it's like, what if we just make a new cartoon instead? But I don't know. Yeah. It's a strange bit of nostalgia there. Yep. And it was noted that we are, again, getting a release schedule that is quite rapid fire. Five books at least between May and July of 2024. So that's five books in three months. Yeah. Uh, and that's and maybe, a lot for e even the most diehard uh, yeah. collector to keep up with. 
But maybe they've realized that is, in fact, a little wild and they have stepped it back. I don't know. But well, they did pull all the images that had dates on them. Um, I think it's also unclear, you know, whether that date for the core books of May 21st, is that just for the player's handbooks? We'll see. Mm -hmm. One last bit of news, because we're going a little bit over time here. D&D &D postage stamps. Say it with me. Yep. D&D postage stamps where so you can't eat them, although you could try. You can lick but them. We're, we're getting closer to, we can, our, uh, you don't have to, but yeah. you can. Uh, the uh, the Nirvana of everything that branded D&D, &D, we haven't gotten the sandwich meat yet, but we're, we're still hoping postage stamps are a step in that direction. Yeah. And I now, now have folks who ask me whether this is baloney levels and th this is better. Uh, you know, I mean, I still want to see a thing that's like yeah. in everyday stores the way that sandwich meat is, but this is in more than grocery stores. This is, you know, a necessity of, of people going and, and whether online or in their post office and seeing this as one of the forever options. That's super cool. 10 different stamps marking the 50th anniversary. We get an example of, um, 10 of, we get to see all 10. Um, they're gorgeous. They come 20 to a sheet. And uh, Greg Breeding, the art director for the United States Postal Service, designed them. And they just look amazing. You get Drizzt and you get a Gold Dragon and Tiamat and various other just neat, you know, the cover of the red box. Uh, just awesome art there that um, uh, it's, I mean, I can't wait to have that. <laughs> and now here on Mastering Dungeons, we are going to get to our main topic for this week. We are going to look at the next few chapters of book three of Planescape Adventures in the Multiverse. Book three is Turn of Fortune's Wheel. It's the adventure that they provide to show us this is what we see a Planescape campaign looking like. So we've gone through the first four chapters already. We've been introduced to the setting uh, in the other books, we've been introduced to monsters in the other books. We woke up in Sigil in the mortuary to escape. We went through either a lot of trouble or we just sort of walked through and got out. Then we got up into uh, Sigil proper where we may have gone out for lunch or we may have not. <laughs> then we go to a casino where we learn more about our predicament or really we don't uh we may play a few casino games or not but we have finally met shemeshka and she has sending us out into the outlands to search for a uh a modron who she claims has escaped her her employee and she wants him back and so out we go. We find that the Modron used a, what's the skull thing called? A Mimir. A Mimir, thank you. A Mimir that the Modron once owned. The Modron's name is Rome, R04M. And so if we can fix the Mimir, we can find our way to what uh, Rome was, was doing. Right. But to fix the Mimir, we need to go to several of the gate towns. Seven. So we left off there. Chapter 
Chapter five is the first of the gate towns that we need to visit. And our question was, what are these chapters going to be like? <laughs> After doing two of them, you are supposed to gain a level. All right, cool. So what are these adventures? Teos is showing us some art from the first of these chapters, chapter five, Automata Recalibration. And he has shown you four pages. And therefore, you have seen the whole chapter. <laughs> this whole uh, Automata Recalibration chapter is on a four-page spread. I did not realize it because I look at Andy and right. Beyond. But I thought to myself, hmm, I wonder how long this is. And yeah. Teos is showing me. Yeah, it's and I pages. thought of that too because, you know, as I talked about in an earlier episode, I noticed when I looked at the printed version that there was a, a, a concerted, you know, like everything is a certain size, uh, which makes a lot of sense from layout of perspective. Mm -hmm. And so it really is, sure. each of these is a confined four-page experience which includes sort of typical things like there's going to be an encounter table with four options uh, and then a little tiny introduction. And then there's something you're doing around approaching this town, um, which actually felt very classic in its way. Like it's almost like when we reviewed um, the Great Modron March adventure, right, where it just has these like and now this town and now that town. It, it definitely has that feel. Um, it's a small amount of space to create an experience with. And so I think that some of these experiences will maybe can fall a little short unless the DM does the work to flesh them out and really mm -hmm. like, like it forces you to really think about what is it that I have here and how do I work with this to create a good experience right? Um, versus something you yeah. could just run as is and you know you're getting a bang up experience. Mm -hmm. To to put things into perspective, a page of full text in one of these books generally runs about a thousand words, with a little bit larger type font, um, mm -hmm. larger font, that's down to maybe 900, 850. So if you take out half a page for art, even if you stick with a thousand, that's four thousand words minus five hundred, so that's three thousand five hundred words at most for this this adventure. Yeah. I looked at it and I thought, okay, so for every two chapters you're supposed to level, how soon do you want your players to to be able to level? After, you know, at first and second, even third level, fourth level maybe. I'm cool with after 4 hours of play, like one mm -hmm. session level. After that, I may want 8 hours of play. You know, just give them a little more time, a little more. You, If you're using resource management as a tool for fun gameplay experience, you need a little bit longer sessions to actually use those resources. Yeah. So I was thinking, okay, I want eight hours of play within these two chapters. So that, that was my math going in. Mm -hmm. I started reading without knowing how long these are. And I went, I scrolled down and I got to the end. I was like, wait that's that's the end that's the end of this chapter i was trying to get four hours of play in my head out of this and this could take an hour yeah it could i i think Easily. that in general you know you might see it balloon to two like i could see a lot of people running two per gaming session we get people together you know when you include kind of all the things that happen in a gaming session 
But if you're running this in a tight convention experience, you could run these very quickly. Um, because of the material being as concise as it is, and the experience being as concise. You know, there's not a case where you go to the gate town of Automata or Cursed and you say, hey, you know, here's the map of the town and here are various things that you can experience. No, it's not doing any setting work like that. Mm -hmm. It is yeah. fully relying on the other setting book, which can be light in some cases. Um, and just saying, here's this very specific experience. And maybe we, we should just go through Automata, Sean, and, and use that as a sort of mm -hmm. like framing. Yeah. Do you want to do it? Do you want me yeah. to? What, what do you feel like? You, you start and I'll jump in. How's that? Cool. So, you know, everything gets a flavor, which of course we'd expect uh, a theme to it as the reflecting the gate town. And so here it's all about the rigidity, the lawful structure of Automata. And this means, but but sometimes it's funny because it, to create the experience, it might contradict or add a piece that isn't talked about in the setting book. And here, you can't, they don't want to have, the, the design doesn't want the players to just show up and go to the gate because it's a lawful place, right? Go up, experience the gate, leave. Why would that be complicated? Well, the complication is there is a 19-hour line to get to the gate. And you need a pass, and to represent this rigid society, it takes 26 hours of filling out forms to also get there. And this is despite the fact that what the characters actually want to do is just be near the gate. They don't even have to use it. And I think to myself, this is a weird premise, Sean. <laughs> mm -hmm. I you should be able to well, just walk up I, to the I, gate. I'm I, yeah, you should. I'm fine. I'm fine with the premise because what happens is the players maybe get in line and they realize how slow the line is moving. So they may go out and say, hey, listen, we don't want to use the gate. We just want to get near the gate. Now, that is beyond the comprehension of this super lawful form uh, filling society. So someone comes to them. Uh, someone comes to them and says, wait, wait. You you said you don't want to go through the gate. Well, tell me your story. And and I'm okay. I'm okay with that part. Because you're now doing um, the work of a good DM, right? Because there is an NPC who's going to come up to you at some point. But that's a little separated from this right. initial text. And it, it it's it's a little separated, but at least it's there. It, mm -hmm. It's I, I I don't have it open in front of me. Actually, I do. Um <laughs> It, at least the, the text says to the players, uh, agents of order, uh, a stiff-looking Gazeri with a sharp uniform approaches, sizes you up, and says, you seem like you're in a bit of a hurry. What business do you have here? So at some point, I can see at some point the players, assuming that the players get in line and then start start a little bit of a ruckus because they try to, they're going to try something. Right. right. You're not going to say to the players, I hope you don't say to your players, it looks like you have to wait about 26 hours in this line. What do you do? There will be players and groups that say, we wait 26 hours. And mm -hmm. I can say, okay, cool. When you when that 26 hours passes, you are told at the front of the line, you don't have the paperwork you need. <laughs> what do you do now? Maybe the players say, we go get the paperwork. Great. If they do that, then I don't have to spend two hours role playing. I can just say, there's the paperwork. 
it's it's a stack the size of a your halfling. What do you do? And if they say we fill out the paperwork, I will say great. <laughs> now you get back in line. It's going to be 26 hours. What do you do? And if they say we wait, I say fine. We get up there, we get what we need, and we get out of there. As soon as they try to do something hinky, as soon oh, we try to sneak up, we try, we fight somebody, we cause a ruckus, we cause a distraction. That's going to draw the guards. And as soon as that happens, you have a window for this NPC, which you are talked about as having. I'm I'm totally cool with that design because it gives the players who just are going to say okay. Mm-hmm. That's that's cool. We do that. If gives the players who are going to try something sneaky or or the, to upset the balance, it gives them a way into the adventure too. Uh, yeah. So I, that's why I'm okay with it. Okay. I will so, have lots of other complaints. Uh, <laughs> don't, don't get me wrong, but that was one that I don't have. So Aristimus the Getsurai is going to tell you, uh, yeah, I can somehow get you in in line but um you've got to do something for me there's this beltha a getsurai troublemaker who is in the inverse under automata and she stole a logbook for the concordant express gate train and erismus wants that recovered and either capture beltha which gives you the full gold piece bonus reward or for half value if uh, she's dead Yeah, and so the characters are then told she lives in this inverse. She's also seen uh, in the Divide Machine Tavern sometimes. So what do you want to do? Yeah, if they go down into the inverse, they are they are told, okay, after 2d4 hours of wandering, you can find her hideout. Or if you go <laughs> to the tavern, 1d4 hours later, someone shows up. We're getting a lot of 2d4, 1d4 hours when I don't know that it terribly matters and I don't know that randomizing it has any bearing on the adventure whatsoever. Especially Sean, because we're told that right before this chapter, Hey, you might spend days, months, weeks, years going through the outlands. And so there is no time whatsoever to this thing, right? Time almost doesn't matter. So do we really need to worry about whether it's, you know, two or five hours? In fact, we almost don't need to worry whether we spend a whole two days in line and filling out forms. Like it it sort of doesn't even, there's no time pressure to this. Right. Right. It's, it goes back to that unity of effect that I always talk about mm-hmm. with Edgar Allan Poe talking about writing a short story. You want every word that you use to be pointing you in the direction of whatever effect you're trying to do. Yeah. Adventures like this are short stories. So you don't want to put in sur- superfluous mm-hmm. mechanics, superfluous story elements. It doesn't matter if it's two hours or eight hours when you find her hideout. What's more important is why is there not any encounters going on while you're down there? Because yeah, what, what is that's the inverse? Thing. Yeah. Why? What's going on down right. here? Help me understand what is happening here. And the only answer we seem to get is, you know, we've got artwork, which shows machinery. And then the final encounter has machinery. So I guess there's machinery in the inverse and rebels, but mm-hmm. apparently not very many. And they don't apparently like control the area or anything but it's hard to tell because yeah it's not a lot of experience and i I would rather it have been that forget how many hours it is 
you know, they can wander in there and you have the latitude to create whatever experiences you want. Ideally, there would be some ideas presented, but, you know, space. OK, fine. But at least help me like that's this. And what should I be doing with the time down there? What what are the themes to reinforce? What are the mm -hmm. things that should stick out? Because the inverse might be completely lackluster run by one DM or might be incredible experience run by another. None of that due to what's written here. Yes, so much, so much I want to say. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> I will start with this. What's what's the glitch and how is it affecting the places that the characters visit? That's thing one. I want every adventure yeah. to mention the glitch in some way. A plus. Two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, two, what is Shemeska's plan? Semeska is this mastermind. She would be doing something in all of these areas. If she wants to find uh, mm -hmm. Rome, if she has agents, they would be also involved in some of this. Huh. Yeah. Three, what makes this area fun for the players mm -hmm. that's different from any other area they could be in? I need an encounter to show that, to not just hint at it, right? Not just to tell me that it's there, but to show me what it's like. Yeah. And, and I, I need all of those things. The, the map is kind of confusing. It's really hard to tell sort of what it's doing. There's a reference to a stairwell. I don't know where the stairwell is on that map. Uh, you know, but that kind of stuff happens. Uh, it's happened on products throughout mm -hmm. time. But the machinery that it grabs if you stand next to it, um, it um, it's sort of a strange encounter that I don't know what that story is that it's telling. And, and, and I agree with that unity of purpose concept. It'd be nice if this encounter with Beltha, who I almost don't know why, like she doesn't think people should live rigidly. Why do you live in this town? Um, and she'll just mm -hmm. sell you the log book. So she's not, I guess she's just trying to profit from it. Like I, I don't, she doesn't even have unity of story. <laughs> um she'll fight to the death yeah. to avoid being a prisoner but the whole point is that we can bring her in or knock her and, and the rules allow you to knock her unconscious so there's just there just isn't that sort of concept and we do have some example encounters all of these things will have a, a table of four encounter ideas but like for example one of the ideas is a green slot tries to take the flashiest item of clothing a character is wearing yeah okay maybe you can have some fun with that but it doesn't really tell me much about this place and it leaves me with those kinds of questions of like wait so a slod can just somehow get into automata and sneak underground or maybe it was someone like i don't even know what you know <laughs> and i agree with you to me mm -hmm. what i would want to do is understand be working off of the common themes that we've already established and the biggest one is your characters are glitches and maybe you've been to Automata. Maybe you're a lawful character or were a lawful character. And wouldn't it be cool if you could have experiences based off of that and your memories would trigger? What if one of you knew Beltha before? What if you used to be a resistance fighter, right? Mm -hmm. that, that you could somehow have these kinds of experiences would be really cool and interesting. And maybe, you know, it could be very cool. Like, how do you deal with the fact that one of you actually was Beltha's best friend, right? Or something like that. And I don't know. Mm -hmm. there, there's a lot that could be done here. It's not bad. I don't know that it, I'd say it's bad, but it, it just, yeah. to me, it just doesn't rise to that level of a great experience. Right. And, and I will, 
happily and hardly admit that I had a hope going into this. Mm-hmm. I had a hope that with what we've seen before, that these chapters would be like full-blown four-hour adventures. You don't need 100 pages to do that. You could do it in, in 10 pages, mm-hmm. uh, where it's a full four-hour experience where you sit down and you, A, learn the story, B, realize how it ties to the whole thing, right? Maybe Beltha, like you said, Tess, maybe Beltha recognizes you and says, hey, John, nice to meet you and pat you on the, nice to see you again and pat you on the back. And you're like, what? Mm -hmm. But you have to play along with it. Maybe Beltha was hired by Shemeska to steal this for some reason. And so you, you get a little piece of the puzzle of what's going on that will come together. But really what what I want was just a fully curated experience that I could play, not have to continue to build my own adventure as I go. If you want to be better at adventure design, write an adventure, hand it to a mediocre DM and sit down with that mediocre DM as they run it for a group of strangers. If they can still run a decent adventure for those people, you've done your job as an adventure designer. If they can't, there's something lacking. I am a mediocre DM. Hi, I'm Sean. I'm a mediocre DM. <laughs> You're not. But okay. uh, so I need, I need more to, especially in a campaign, to bring this whole experience together for my players without me having to do a lot of heavy lifting. I can do a little heavy lifting. If you tell me run an encounter with four slot and a slot leader, the slot leader has been hired to take the PCs down by this other figure. I can do that. Uh, but I need yeah. more. And, and I think there's, there's a, there, there are three things that I'd maybe focus on here, right? One is the, the, the larger themes like we've talked about. Two is the fact that like you're saying, does this create a, a, a cohesive experience that any DM can run off of versus that you are forced to improvise and, and, and bring your skill to bear because the the thing didn't do it for you. The writing didn't do it for you. But the third piece is, and, and you hinted at this, but I want to make sure we don't gloss over it, is that we had been hoping and we were reading the other part of this three book product that we would here get to see what people at our game hole con uh, in the crowd said, which was when I want to, when I buy something, I want to be able to use it for parts and I want to, have this be a showcase of how you do it, right? So this is D&D's chance, Wizard's chance to take Automata and show you how to create an adventure in it. And I don't know that this is a great example you'd want to use. If I want to create, you know, if I just, if I'm not using this adventure for what it is, and I say, okay, I want to run a Planescape adventure on Automata, and I want to just pull this in, I don't know that the parts are super great, right? You want to use the gate, you can't, you got to... Like I'd, I'd like more than that to to give me the to to say you know that you get the full experience of this place and and that your characters your players are going to say yeah I can tell you all about what Automata is like I I've, I've played an adventure there this it's not bad again I don't okay. think this is bad but it just doesn't quite rise to those goals ticking those checking those boxes I'm I'm going to disassociate I'm going to disassociate my disassociate Sean from Sean and I'm going to say. Hey, Wizards is fine here. Wizards is now trying to give people tools 
where they can make their own fun. And I know groups where they don't need seven in combat encounters in a night to be happy. Mm -hmm. They're just happy to get together, role play a little bit, have a combat. But it's okay that in two of these chapters that come together for you to gain a level, you only have two combats total in those two adventures. Mm-hmm. Because that's the the uh, that's what I'm seeing, and so it's okay because it's more about the role playing and those sorts of things, and and that's okay. Uh, okay, I'm coming back into Sean's body now. <laughs> Where was I? <laughs> you what, were what, all, what happened? It was really us? nice. Yeah, you you got all positive there for a while. I I agree with you. I mean, I yeah. I can totally buy off on that too, but I think you want to look at the overall audience and and you know like we we heard so very clearly from the majority of the folks in the audience at game Holgon saying to us i want to be able to use this thing for parts right and we hear over and over again like i want a great story experience and i don't want to do too much work because what's beautiful is when you do the work for people they can still add to that there are things in products that i find to be perfect i could run this as is and i will add to that because I want to insert my creativity on it, but it's great when I don't feel like I have to do the work, right? Okay. I, I can't argue with that. Whoever you were talking to before. Yeah, no, that other person. Must be, uh, um, do yeah. we want to go over some yeah. of these other ones? Because we have seven of these. I I honestly don't. I mean, if you want to go over one that drew your attention, why don't we each take one and just yeah. describe what happens in it? So I'll talk about uh, Excelsior, chapter seven. So we'll skip the Carceri prison town. Uh, and I'll talk about Excelsior because this is one that uh, that I think is, is it has some interesting design to it, right? So here are the floating gardens and towers of Excelsior. Um, you have no barrier. You can approach the gate by climbing the spiraling stairs to the God Strand pillar and take in the gate. Now, if you're evil, you have to make 18 DC 10 wisdom checks <laughs> and each failure is exhaustion, but you can't go above level five. So somebody could drag an evil character, you know, up the stairs, eventually get them there. Um, And there's a hound archon named Varel who will approach. He is a town guard who wants to solve the disappearance of several inhabitants. They've just vanished. And they have a suspect who was in the location of several of these. Uh, She is named Sincerity, is a tiefling. But he doesn't want to accuse someone who may be innocent. He has doubts, and so he wants you to look into it. So your immediate options are go speak with Sincerity, which she will. She has a special effect of the Glibinous spell, so she can replace a Charisma check with 15 when desired. And I guess the assumption is, therefore, she's just going to make the checks. I don't know. Or maybe not. Um, maybe it's just easier for her to make the checks. Um, if you question her, she's just going to tell you, no, she had nothing to do with it, and she feels very confident about lying about all of it. Um, but she is, in fact, guilty. Um, then you could visit her home or you can question locals. If you visit her home, the only real clue there, she has a cage with sunflies, which are these planar creatures. And if you release one from the cage, it will make like a hugging motion. And the whole thing is they've been trained to grab an item, which is like a iron flask kind of object and fly off to visit the nightmare hag, Uncle Longteeth. It's not really entirely clear sort of how this relationship's there. This is something for your DM to kind of feel for whether you want to make it really obvious that it's looking for a thing to hold or if it's a hug like it's described. 
Um, but if you put something in its hands, it'll fly off. It's unclear whether you should easily be able to follow it or not. Again, up to the DM. Um, and if you talk to people, you'll know that sincerity keeps sunflies. This will come up again. And if you press them about the flight path, <laughs> I always think it's interesting when, when adventurers say, like, if you press them on this thing, you probably won't press them about. But if they were to press them about the flight path, then they'll say, oh, yeah, it's a very regular path that these sunflies always follow. Seems like the weirdest thing for people to know. But if you follow it, you'll get to Uncle Longteeth's wagon. And the night hag here has six bottles that function as iron flasks. It's very obvious. She'll probably eventually, he will eventually um, uh, plane shift away if you're in combat. Um, but you can then recover the five captured people. Um, and that, and if you restore them, you will confirm that sincerity was guilty. And there are a number of ways that you can kind of win with sincerity's guilt. So if you free those captives, um, if you capture Uncle Longteeth, if you can tell a good enough story with enough little bits of evidence, sincerity surrenders and confesses. Uh, for reward, you get an iron flask, a lantern of revealing. If you got sincerity to confess, a brooch of shielding. Um, and then there's a thing that if Longteeth escapes, he will later create a he'll send a smoke method your way to deliver a larva with the face of one of the characters. And I thought that was really interesting because I don't really know what the point is. I think maybe it's supposed to be like, hey, in a, maybe in a previous incarnation, you became a larva. It tells us to look at the DMG, but gives us no page reference. I think they mean the section in Hades in chapter two. It was a bit of a puzzle to me. But, you know, potential, just again, things for you to improvise. What do you think of all that, Sean? Mm -hmm. I think I want to talk about chapter eight, <laughs> which is sure. Fawnell, uh Vicious Allies or Vicious Alliances. Uh, so you go to the gate town of Faunel and they have there just undergone a rebirth because the previous incarnation of the town merged with the Beastlands. So now we are getting, uh, we're seeing what happens when this uh, merger happens and we have to restart here in, in a gate town. Since they're rebuilding, there isn't a lot there. There are a few the buildings remained so there are some buildings there that people are starting to occupy and they're starting to trade and do these things but we don't really get a lot of that what we hear about is the three factions of sentient animals that are vying for control and the first thing you meet when you enter is a giant sloth a sentient giant sloth named razak who wears a ring of animal influence uh, he is a messenger who sends messages between these three animal groups. He, he can tell you exactly where the gate is. The gate is a basically a pool of water that's guarded by a powerful ancient being who uses the Empyrean stats. So that's, that's way above the CR of the players. Uh, and this creature is named Wrath, and it can flawlessly detect lies. So as long as you're honest with Wrath about why you're trying to access the gate, you get access to the gate. If you tell a lie or try to prevaricate in any way, uh, he will whoop you. <laughs> but assuming that you say, hey, we're here because we're trying to repair our guy. We just need to get up close to the gate. Boom, you're done. So as you're leaving, then you see Knowles who are members of a group called the Vile Hunt, who are eating the remains of a giant 
Ebex. Mm. And you, I the adventure assumes that you go fight these oh. uh gnolls, but you really don't have to. So you could literally at that point say, that's that's bad for the Ibex and uh Ibex and just walk away. Having Nature. completed chapter eight. Yeah. Red and tooth mm-hmm. and claw. Yeah. And then get uh, your level. Now, if you intervene, <laughs> yeah. If you yeah, then get your level. If you intervene, then you can fight these. And you are told by uh your guide, Razak, that yeah, they've been hunting both normal animals and sentient animals in this gate town area. And yeah, it's bad. You should probably go tell the leader of the faction that that this uh, Ibex belonged to that what happened. Okay, if we do that, we go to faction number one, the herbivores. The herbivores tell you, well, yeah, we think that these gnolls are in league with this other faction, the predators, because the predators attacked some of our herbivores who we were protecting and killed them. So our leader stomped on the predator's leader and he's probably mad about that. Ophelia is the leader of the herbivores. Uh, She's an elephant. So the characters are then hired to go check on the predators to see what the connection is to the gnolls. They go there and they meet the leader of the predators, a uh, saber-toothed tiger, named Ebenclaw. He won't even talk to them unless they make a high level or high DC charisma check or bring yak meat, which you can buy for 20 gold pieces at the the newly forming town. If they do this, they learn from Ebenclaw that A, no, he has nothing to do with this. B, uh, he is actually interested in knowing what's up with these gnolls because he doesn't know anything about them. And we're told there's one word used to tell us that uh, he's being honest. It says that he is forthright with the with the party. Forthright does not mean honest per se. Forthright means expressive and mm-hmm. and out in front of things. It there maybe means honest a little bit. So we can assume that he is being honest. He says you should check with the third faction with the flying faction Mm -hmm. because they might know more. So off you trundle to the flying faction led by an albatross named Parvaz, all sentient, obviously, who could care less about either of the other factions or the gnolls. However, if you give him something, uh, a magic item or make a charisma check, he will tell you where the gnoll layer is. Then you can trundle off to the knoll layer to deal with this vile hunt at its source. Mm. If you work out deals with either Ophelia or Ebenclaw to do this for them, they will promise you money and they will send animal reinforcements with you to help in the fight. I don't know, like the predators, if they send, if both the herbivores and the predators send people with you, I would think that that would not go well as the dire wolves fight with the rhinoceri, but hey, whatever. And if you defeat them, you you know we win the the thanks of all the factions, or at least the herbivores 
and the predators and off you trundle with not a iota of care for the power structure here with what's going on with any of the factions gaining ascendancy or coming together to form one cohesive group that could you know oversee this this new um, burgeoning gate town it just sort of if you're in, if you become invested enough to actually do this it seems like you would become invested enough to want to help out with this power struggle right right and you'd want to ask questions like well how did this work before new Fonel came into be like somehow there must have been a balance between how all of you work together so mm -hmm. you know at some point in the endless history of this place it must have worked. Can we do that again? <laughs> Someone tell me what that was like and let's do it again, right? Yeah, and again, it, there's no mention of the glitch. There's no mention of anything else that's happening in this uh, area to to connect to the rest of this we, plot that, that you're in the middle of. You know, these last two are a little easier to sort of port into kind of any campaign maybe as experiences. And so maybe that is... If I wait, hold on, I'm going to channel another Teos, different Teos, and he's going to say that maybe what we're doing is we're divorcing from the overall story so that it's easier to just make these, you know, little adventures you can run in a Planescape product or in a Planescape adventure without worrying too much about the larger adventure. So I'm not sure that that was really why this was done. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, all seven of these. This is one of these things that it's, it's how we end up with nostalgia, right? That you're going to you're going to have people who play through all seven of these and they're going to have a fantastic time. They're going to experience these mm -hmm. gate towns. They're going to experience, you know, wild types of creatures and uh, the planar landscape. And it'll be a really neat experience, especially if their DM adds some things about the glitch or whatever. But then there are going to be some other folks who are going to feel like they're just moving from A to B and having really shallow experiences that feel a little sometimes contrived or limited. And, and at least in, in, in the ones that I've looked at, they all feel like, like it falls heavily on how good the DM will be at managing this information and adding to it, which is, yep. you know, maybe we want to say Planescape is a product for expert DMs, in which case, I can sign off a little more on that, but I, you know, if I think of something like Wild Beyond the Witchlight, which is a whimsical setting with fantastic elements, right? It's somewhat, it's different than Planescape, but it has some of that, you know, similar piece. Those approaches, while of course everything shines better with an awesome DM, in general, all of those experiences in the adventure work together and have a story to tell and they work on their own. They work. The, the, the information there is what you need to run the situation. It's presented to you very clearly, it, it almost always. And it, and it has a very clear indication of what the fun is and, and how you as the DM draw out mm -hmm. that fun. And I don't see that same clarity here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I was Rome in all of these places. And did Rome's presence have anything to do with this? Is Shemeska's presence here mm -hmm. a destabilizing force in any way? Is the glitch a destabilizing force in any way? 
we've said it before, but I'll say it again. You know, all of those things, even the slightest mention of any of those three things gives me something as the DM where I can say, I know that you're glitch characters and that you don't know who you are and all of these things, but I'm throwing you small hints as we settle the the inverse uh, problem. As we settle the problem between these three factions of animals, even as we do these side quests, I'm able to link it back in some way. So we don't forget the overall goal. Yeah. And I just, I don't have any of that at all. And, and I'll add another two little bits, which is that in the early chapters, we may have joined a faction, right? There was some work there that kind of talked us into joining a faction. Mm -hmm. That doesn't really play out. Um, Factions are often not present. They are sometimes, like in Cursed, for example, there is a, a faction there that plays prominently. None of the information tells us what to do with that, but at least it is there for us to play off of if we want to. Um, we are given a walking castle, and there is no space devoted to saying what it's like to go between these different locations in this walking castle and what we might visit or see. We could just go to the source book you know, which is pretty brief on that. As we talked about it, it's a very short section on what's outside of the gate towns in between. It's just very, you know, paragraph telling you that there's a powerful entity there. So there's a lot of work we could do as DM, but it's not done for us. And I think the biggest reason is, well, this adventure is 96 pages long. And so like you were saying, it would be great to get 10 pages per each of these pieces to where you could properly give it that treatment. Well, right there, that would be 70 pages for these. Um, and and then you only have 20 pages left for everything else. And so, so this needs to be a bigger product to, to yeah. really deliver on that premise um, or a differently organized product that, that's trying to do a different thing with it. But, um, mm -hmm. And so if I step, if you step back, and look at these. I mean, what what do you kind of really like about these? Like, what would, if you were trying to sell this product, what would you say about these chapters in the middle here? And what would you what do you like about it? They give good DMs a skeleton of a story that they can add to, mm -hmm. and they give really really good DMs um, a a a blueprint that they can not just add to to make a fun session, but add to to make a fun campaign. Yeah, yeah. Really good DMs, yeah. Yeah, I agree with you fully. And I think we're, you know, we're on point that it, it would be great if the glitch were a real story here and some of these other story elements. The Shemeska part is really interesting. And I think Planescape's always a weird setting where it's like the factions are so important, but they might not be encountered at all at a gate town. Why? If you were a faction, wouldn't you be involved in every gate town? And if you're Shemeska, wouldn't you be involved at every, wouldn't you have informants at every gate, you know? And presumably they do, and all they do is, is they report back to Shemeska on what the characters have been up to, I guess. That's probably really all they're supposed yeah. to be doing. But, okay. It's not how actual yeah. uh, criminal organizations work, but <laughs> let alone multi-planner yeah. ones, but okay. All right, so so next time we'll get to chapters 12 and 13 at least, which talks about Outlands exploration and secrets of the Spire. That will give us the end of part two, and then we can hopefully move on into part three.
Uh, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for your support. Thank you specifically to our patrons who help us finance this whole mess that you're listening to. Uh, you can become a patron of the show by going to patreon.com slash mastering DND. We have many, many supporters out there. We have Master of Dungeons supporters. Thank you. We have a special shout out for our Master of Realms supporters in our show notes. And the Masters of the Multiverse, well, they get a little special thank you that goes something like this. Thank you, Keith Ammon of The Monsters Know What They're Doing, Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Merrick Blackman, Evil John, Darren Chandler, Seth Eckel, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Nathan Fuller, The Mighty Jerd, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Chad Jackson, Brian King, Jim Klingler, a.k.a. DM Prime Mover, Chad Lynch, The Mathemagician, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Robert Paisley, Vladimir Prenner from Croatia, Chance Russo, at Drago Russo, Ross Sandberg, Andy Shockney, Christian Simonse, Joe Tyler, James Walton, Graham Ward, and Trace. Thank you so much for your support. You can also help us out by leaving us a review via Apple Podcasts or other means of listening to our podcasts, or you can go to YouTube and click that beautiful subscribe button. Teos, where can people find you and what are you up to? Find me at alphastream.org. I am up to trying to catch up on all my many projects. Whew, so much to do. Where do we find you, Sean? Uh, you can find me on all the social medias at Sean Merwin. And also the show is on most of those social media platforms at Mastering D&D. So we've skirted the gate towns. We've been collecting memories from the Mimir. What are we going to do now? Hmm. Uh, well, I'm going to for sure take my uh, walking castle and I'm going to just run over the gates of all these towns and just go straight into the center and take the readings that way and then just walk out of my castle again. Who's going to stop me? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm right there. I'm sniping anybody who gets in the way, too. So <laughs> that, we can do it together. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs>